If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Micah chapter 6. So, oh, keep forgetting to bring it. So, uh, Micah chapter 6 is where we're going to be. My son forgot to bring it. That's okay. We have uh, bulletins, though. If you don't have a Bible, we have bulletins with all the passages of Scripture on on them if you want to take a look. There's no songs on those bulletins because I printed them this morning when I already knew. So, um, so hopefully hopefully we'll have Chad back soon. Um, so anyway, so we're, we're looking at the book of Micah chapter 6, and um, what we talked about last week, we, we kind of introduced the idea of this series, and th- the whole idea behind the series that we started last week is, for a lot of us, we've been handed certain things, and we've been sort of given belief systems, we've been given structures, we've been given a certain like identity, um, personally, culturally, theologically, and for a lot of us, as we get older, we find that some of those things are either they used to work for us and they no longer work for us, or maybe they never worked. We, it, it's, it, and we're, we're kind of realizing in real time that we need to deconstruct some of the things that were handed to us. And that's okay. That's part of what, what, I mean, we call this deconstruction, but another word for it is growth. And so we, we grow and we learn and we, we, we discover new parts of, of ourselves. And, and the analogy that I used, and, and Courtney kind of helped me see, like, maybe the analogy needs a little bit of updating, but the analogy that I used was, like, let's say you've got an apartment and the apartment is full of furniture. And one of the things, and the, it's, it's cluttered and it's got tons of stuff in there that you don't necessarily need anymore or that just don't, doesn't work anymore. And so one of the things that perhaps you've needed to do is take all, and the apartment is like your brain or your head. Um, and you, what, what you do is you take everything out and you go look and, and ask yourself like, okay, well, what goes back in? And Courtney pointed out like, may, maybe it's not just the furniture. Maybe it's like, may, maybe the whole thing kind of needs to be stripped bare. Maybe, maybe you need to move. Or, or may, maybe, maybe the whole place is like infested with termites and you gotta like take out the floors and the walls. And, and it's a lot, like, the, 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 the problems are a lot deeper than that. And so wh- whatever that looks like for you, whatever it looks like to sort of take all those things out and to deconstruct them and to ask, like, okay, now that we've kind of torn this place apart, what goes back in? How do we begin to reassemble some of these things? What, what, what do we put into the space that makes sense to us? What if we strip everything away? What are we left with? And what are the assumptions that we've been given about who we are and who maybe we're supposed to be instead? So we, we are in this series, and, and I, I mentioned this last week, but I'll, I'll probably have to mention it every week, is this series in a lot of ways is about my own personal deconstruction. So I realize like everybody's kind of on their own particular journey and everybody's kind of got their own process of, of growth and deconstruction and reconstruction, and that's fine. And um, my, my own journey has led me to these particular places and my own interpretations. And anytime, and, and, and these sermons are based on my own personal interpretations of the scriptures and how I've sort of found my way through and back into some, some kind of faith in the process of um, like taking things apart and putting them back together again. So, um, so part of this, if this can offer some amount of guidance, that's great. But a lot of this is just is, is my, my own, like a reflection of my own particular journey and struggle. So um, which brings us to the book of Micah chapter, eight, chapter six. So in the, in the book of Micah, you've got this prophet and one of the things that Micah's doing here in this particular passage in chapter 6 is Micah's doing a little bit of deconstruction. Micah's asking questions about what are the systems, what are the, what are the types of things that we find that perhaps need to be taken apart? And what are the things that, we, that we've just culturally or theologically assumed that we need to kind of get rid of or, or deconstruct in a certain kind of way? And so Micah's not just dealing with his own faith. He's dealing with like faith structures of other cultures that, are, that surround them. So here in Micah chapter 6, beginning in verse 6, he writes, 
With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with, a thou with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He's, and by the way, he's articulating real practices from real other like faith structures of his day. He's not coming up with these, I mean, these are hypothetical questions or um, rhetorical questions, but he's not coming up with them out of the blue. He's, he's saying like, there are these structures that demand these things. And so Micah's asking, is this working? Is, is this structure, are these structures, are these practices, is this really what, what works? Or is there another path? Is it possible that we need to put these things back together again? Or we need to like find new furniture to put into the apartment? And so then in verse eight, after he's done all this, does this work? Does this work? Does this work? In verse 8, he writes, He, God, has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So there are these, basically what Micah's saying here is, there are these attributes that the prophet says, here are some indicators, here are some signposts that serve as a strong reminder of who you are and you, what your role is to be in the world. And the first of these attributes is those who do justly, people who are seekers of justice. And so what we're going to do for the next three parts of the series is it's going to be like a series within a series. We're going to take these three attributes that Micah points out and we're going to ask, okay, in Micah's deconstruction, he comes up with these three things. He says, okay, these are the three things that have to go back in. And so what we're going to do for the next three, week, three parts, um, not counting the week that Sean's going to be here, um, we're going to ask, okay, what does it look like for this to go in? What does it look like for us to take this and really apply it to maybe like a reconstruction point of view? So the, and the first thing that Micah points out here is he says, those who do justly, those who are seekers of justice. And I'll go ahead and tell you, <clears throat> for, for a long time, for a very long time, my own personal understanding of faith, and a lot of this came from like my, my like youth group time um, as a kid, growing up, but my basic understanding of faith was very individualized. It was very, um, like, how I am doing in my own personal, like, faith, like, the term we would use is, like, your faith walk or whatever, um, and, and so the, it, was, it was all very, like, how am I doing? Am I reading the Bible enough? Am I praying enough? Am I doing these types of things? And for a long, long time, that was my own basic understanding, and, um, okay, I'm going to tell you all something, and this is a thing that in seven years of doing this church, I've never talked about because I, it's, I, I find it a little bit embarrassing, but we're all friends here. It's not like we're streaming or anything, right? So, um, so when I was 19, I wrote and published a book of daily devotionals for teenagers. And, um, and, I, and the, the, here's the thing about writing a book when you're, when you're 19. You get older and you find... <laughs> And what you find is that the things that you thought were like really like deep and spiritual and cool when you were 19, when you're 40, you're like, that's embarrassing. I certainly hope, but the book is no longer in print. Put your phone, put your phone away. I know what you're doing. Don't, it's out of print. I've ensured no one's, you're not going to find it. There's, if, if you go looking, you'll find another, like an ebook that I wrote called Lost in the Flood. It's a, it's a series of essays on the book of Noah. Feel free to read that one. I'm not deeply mortified by that one, but this one, um, I've, I've done my best to sort of hide away and ensure that no one ever finds because it's bad. It's, it, it's, it's just, it's, it's very, very, very bad. And, um, and, and one of the things that makes it bad is, I mean, first of all, again, like I, I've grown and, I, it's, it's, and I, I've not revisited it in a long time because it's like looking at pictures of yourself when you're in the eighth grade. Like, why would you do that to yourself? But it's, it's also like when I was 19, like what, what, what did I know about like what, what amount of wisdom could I possibly have bestowed 
like that, that needed to be put in a book and published in a book, like in what world does, does that need to exist? And it didn't. And, and my, like, again, I, I didn't, like, I don't know what I knew that I felt like needed to be, like most of my friends were like playing football and I was like, I guess I'll write a book. So, and I'll just like make sure it gets out there and, um, and, and it has to exist forever. It's like, it's worse than having a blog or like a YouTube page. It's like, it just, it just is, is out there. And so, um, and, and the thing about the, this book is, and, and my theology at the time, it's not like I had a lot of like formal training. My theology at the time was mostly informed by like Stephen Curtis Chapman songs. Um, whereas today my theology is mostly informed by Bruce Springsteen songs. So I've upgraded which like male baby boomer singer songwriter I, um, I'm mostly informed by. I'll, I also... I also went to like college and seminary and got an education and you know did, did those things as well. But mostly it's the Bruce Springsteen thing. <laughs> but but the thing about but the thing about this book is like if you if you were to go back and look and look for it, which I'm begging you not to, if you, what you would find is you'd find a bunch of like one to two page long essays about individualized faith. There's there's not a word about seeking justice. There's not a word about like helping the marginalized. There's nothing in there that isn't about individual like prayer life. Um, reading the Bible more, like those types of, like, like going to church as much as you can, or whatever it is that I put in there. Again, haven't revisited it in a while, um, nor will I. Um, <laughs> did you find it? No. Good. <laughs> I know you're looking for it. So, um, anyway, the, but, but the whole thing, it, it came from a very individualized, like, I, like, what am I doing for my faith? And like, it, it's all sort of like geared towards that, that perspective with not a word about like justice or mercy or those types of, of values that we find here in, Ma in, in Micah 6. So, but the problem with that, uh, one of the many problems with that is you cannot take the scripture seriously without some awareness of our being called to be being seekers of justice. It's, it's everywhere, it's all over the place. Look at the book of Isaiah chapter one. In Isaiah one, you have this prophet and uh, he is critiquing uh, the society and the people of his time. And so in Isaiah 1.16, he writes, Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. And so apparently something is broken in the system that, that Isaiah is writing to. And so in verse 17, he says, Learn to do right, to which we, re we reply, what, is that, what does that even mean? What does it look like to do right? And his very first suggestion here, commandment here, is seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. All over the place in, in the Hebrew scriptures, you find this constant refrain of take up the cause of the fatherless and the widow and the foreigner. You find it over and over and over again. We did a whole series on this a couple of years ago where it just you, you find it happens so much. It's almost it, like it is so repetitive that you find this, these, these phrasings together. Don't forget about the people who are most marginalized in your midst. You find it all over the place. And so in Isaiah here, he says, learn to do right. And what does that look like? It looks like seeking justice. It looks like taking up the cause of the fatherless and the widow. Look at the book of Luke chapter three. In the book of Luke chapter three, you have this guy whose name is John, who um, is often referred to as John the Baptist because he liked to baptize people a lot. And so um, it was kind of his whole thing. So in, uh, in the book of John chapter three, beginning in verse seven, what, what we have is John has been baptizing people out in the wilderness and more and more people are starting to show up and more and more people want to know what John's deal is. And so in verse seven, it says, John said to the crowds coming out to, so crowds are coming out to be baptized by him. And this is how he addresses the crowds who are interested in, in the thing that he's doing. His opening line to this group of people is, you brood of vipers, 
who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Which, by the way, not a great opening line if your whole goal, this we definitely talked about last week. Um, we, okay, there's lots of like seminars about like church growth that are meant for like pastors. Pastors will go to like seminars and conferences and read books about like, here's how to become more attractional. Here's how to, here's how to draw more people in. Here's how, here's how to become the, the biggest possible church you can by making sure that everybody who comes in is it like feel, feels a, like a certain sense of warmth and welcome, and they're really glad that they're there. And John opens up with, you brood of vipers. Like, this is, like, there's no church growth seminar in the world that would advise you to open with this line. You brood of vipers. So John, he says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones... God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So some very harsh words from John, to which the crowds are not like, okay, I guess we'll go elsewhere. They actually want to know, what do we do? How do we, how do we respond to this very pointed, very hostile critique that John is offering to us? And John's answer is, so they say, what should we do then? The crowd asked. In verse 11, John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. John's major critique is followed by, do you have resources that somebody else is desperate for? Is it possible that there are people who are suffering in your midst and you can do something about it? Mother Teresa famous, famously said, if you have two coats, you've stolen one. And so it's this, 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 which basically is a repeat of what John is saying here. Is it possible that there are people who are suffering and that I actually have the power to do something about it and I don't? And so John is saying something, there is something fundamentally broken about what it looks like when people, when, when people who are trying to follow the way of this God, there's something fundamentally broken when people who are trying to follow the way of this God don't respond to the needs of others. Whenever there is a call to authentic spirituality, from Micah to Isaiah to, to John the Baptist, whenever there is a call to any amount of authentic spirituality, there is a direct appeal to care for the needs of those who suffer always. Like you find it over and over and over again. Take a look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 25. In Matthew 25, um, you've got, um, I went the wrong direction. So in, in the book of Matthew chapter 25, you have Jesus giving this very big example of what it looks like to encounter the divine. And so in Matthew 25, verse 31, it says, he, he says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison or go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. So when Jesus is saying, whenever we serve those who suffer, there is a divine encounter in our midst. Whenever, whenever we feed the hungry, whenever we, whenever we see the needs of people who are in pain or suffering or marginalized, and our response is to act, then we are encountering the divine in some sort of mystical, beautiful way. Jump back a couple of chapters to Matthew 23. So in Matthew 23, a couple of chapters before that, 
Jesus is addressing some religious leaders. And usually when Jesus ha is addressing religious leaders, he has some harsh words for them. And um, this, this passage is no different. In fact, this is in the middle of what's often referred to as the seven woes. So this, it's not like the Keanu, re like, woe. It's like seven woes, like, woe to you who do these kinds of things. So um, thank you. Um, so uh, so what, what's going on here in, in the seven woes is Jesus is offering specific critiques specifically towards the religious leaders. And he's saying, like, here are the ways that you're missing it. Here are the ways that perhaps we're not doing the thing that we thought we were supposed to be doing in the world. So in Matthew 23, verse 23, Jesus says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. So first of all, what is Jesus even talking? When he says you give a tenth of your spices, what is he referring to here? So um, jump back, hold, if you want, if you have a Bible, you can hold your place in Matthew 23 and jump back to Deuteronomy 14. Or if you have one of our bulletins, it's just on the, like, just the next one down. So in Deuteronomy 14, you have certain commandments about what it looks like to participate in this community of faith. And so in Matthew 14, or I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 14, verse 22, it says, be sure to set aside a tenth of all of your fields produced each year. Each Eat the tithe of your grain, new wine and olive oil, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for your name so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. So here in this commandment, what you have is you have this command um, in an agrarian society, people were told like, okay, you're going to grow a certain amount of things. And so whatever it is that you grow, whatever it is that you raise, take a tenth of that and take it into the temple and eat it in the temple. And the reason for that was the belief, the, the teaching here is all of life is a gift. And that all, everything you eat is, is the thing that gives you life because food is the thing that keeps you alive. So the idea here is you would take a tenth of what you eat, of what you grow, eat it in the temple as a way of reminding yourself that the other 90% is also a gift. And so that was the idea of taking a tenth of everything that you gave, or of everything that you had, and then like portioning it out. So, he, but it doesn't necessarily say anything about cumin and spices, right? It just says everything you grow. But the people of Jesus's time, the religious leaders, took this so literally that they took it to mean everything that you grow. And so what Jesus is saying is you take even like the smallest of your spices and you're tenthing it out and you're taking a tenth of that and you're taking it into the temple and you're eating it in the temple because you're, you're having to do your you're separating that because you're taking this so, so literally that even how many spices, how, like how many grains of cumin you eat are of like great significance to you because you care so much about getting this right. So the religious leaders were so passionate and they were so literal that they even applied this, this passage to their spices. So then, let's go back to Matthew 23. So in Matthew 23, sorry I'm going so fast, it's just we have so much ground to cover. So, um, so in Matthew 23, uh, back to verse 23, it says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but, and watch, watch what he does here, you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You can underline this phrase, more important, if you want to. He doesn't say you've neglected the other things that are also important. He says you've neglected the more important matters of the law. Justice, in Jesus' day, justice is this giant idea in the ancient world. It's the answer, basically justice for Jesus in, in the world of Jesus is the, is the answer to the question, are there things, as a human being, are there things that I believe I am entitled to? Simply because I'm a human being, are there things that I believe I am entitled to? 
And what does it look like when someone else is, is denied those things that I believe I am naturally entitled to? And, the, and if what you see, if there's a disparity there, there are things that I believe I'm entitled to, but other people are not receiving, then, Jesus, then, and then in Jesus' day, that would have been like how you would, would cite injustice. So Jesus is say, saying, you have failed to show the world what God is like. You have failed to be advocates for justice and mercy. You have failed to do the more important matters of the faith. So then let's, let's take a look at all of Matthew 23, uh, verse 23. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. So Jesus is not saying don't do the spices. He, he, never, he never goes so far as to say like don't, don't do the individualized stuff. He doesn't say that. It's not that the, that the individual stuff doesn't matter. What he's saying is there are things in Jesus's words that are more important matters of the faith. And he's saying let's not forget that there are these bigger issues that we are supposed to be participating in and we're not because we're so focused on getting like the cumin measures right. And then in verse 24, um, in verse 24, he says, you blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel, which is a weird thing to say to anybody. So a couple of things about this. First of all, the word gnat in Aramaic is the word kamla, and the word camel in Aramaic is the word gamla. So in, when Jesus is doing this, it's a bit of a play on words. This rhymes. So, it's, so he, he's basically saying, you know, you strain out a kamla, but you swallow a gamla. Um, this is kind of like a weird, lame first century rap battle. Um, Lin-Manuel Lin Miranda is this close to making a musical out of this. I can feel it. Um, so, uh, so first of all, there's a play on words. So he's saying something that rhythmically and, and like to, to the ear of the people who heard him is, is going to make sense. But there's also something much larger going on here. So for the people that Jesus is talking to, the religious leaders, they're so zealous that when they eat, there, one of the things that would have happened was, in fact, if you look at the seven woes in the book of Luke, it takes place at a meal. And so you can imagine that people have like glasses or like cups of wine in front of them. And one of the, th one of the things that they would do at the time, because they were so concerned about not getting bugs in their drinks, there was like this complicated system of strainers that they would put at the top of their drink. And they would have to undo the strainer, take a drink, and then put the strainer back on for, for fear that a bug would accidentally get into their drink. And the fear of getting a bug in your drink isn't just because like we're in the desert and there's bugs and it's gross. It's also, there's actually a religious significance to this. Take a look at Leviticus chapter 11. So in Leviticus 11, uh, which, which is all about like what foods are ceremonially considered to be clean and unclean. In Leviticus 11 verse 20, uh, it says, all flying insects that walk on all fours are to be regarded as unclean by you. There are, however, some flying insects that walk on all fours that you may eat, to which all of us are like, oh good, that's great news. Um, those who have jointed legs for hopping on the ground. Of these, you may eat any kind of locust, katydid, cricket, or grasshopper. I love that it like lays out a menu for you. Here are some options for you, just in case you're super hungry. Um, then in verse 23, it says, but all other flying insects that have four legs, you are to regard as unclean. And one of, the kinds, one of these types of insects would have been a gnat. So the reason for straining out the gnat isn't just like, it's gross and I don't want gnats in my drink. It's the religious leaders believe, not just like we want to stay clean. It, it, it actually, it was more like intense than that. The belief was, because the Roman Empire had conquered the Judean territory at the time, the belief among lots of the religious leaders was we are being oppressed by the Roman Empire, and the reason we're being oppressed is because we haven't taken these laws as seriously as we should up until now. And so, I mean, they genuinely believed if we don't like, spread out the spices like we're supposed to, if we don't strain out the gnats like we're supposed to, 
we will never be free of the Roman Empire. So they, they, the, the stakes felt very, very high to them. So the, the whole thing about like straining out a gnat is there's a religious significance to it. The, the religious leaders care a lot about this. But then if you jump back to verse 4 in the same chapter, in, verse, in chapter 11, it says, There are some that only chew the cud or only have a divided hoof, but you must not eat them. The camel... Though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is ceremonially unclean for you. So it's also not okay to eat a camel. So both gnats and camels have something to do with clean and unclean. It's not just like one thing is big and one thing is small. It is both things are unclean. So when Jesus makes this statement, this would have actually felt like a hurtful critique to the religious leaders of, of, their, of his day because he's talking to this religi these religious leaders who would have memorized, had Leviticus 11 fully memorized. So when Jesus says, you strained out a gnat, but you swallowed a camel, he's saying, you think you're clean. You think you've got this covered because you've got the gnat problem covered. But the problem is you're swallowing a camel. There is, like metaphorically speaking, it, it is like there's a much bigger problem that we're not addressing here. So it's not that the individual dimensions of our humanity or our spirituality are not important. It's, it's, that not focus, it's that focusing mainly on those things or solely on those things can lead to the much larger issues, can lead us to miss, I'm sorry, sorry to, can lead us to miss much larger issues of justice and mercy. It's not that the individual stuff doesn't matter. It's that, yeah, but we're swallowing, when we, when we miss the justice elements, we're swallowing the camel. When people are suffering, Jesus expects his people to do something about it. So the question for us as a church becomes, okay, if this is part of our reconstruction, if we as a church are going to take this seriously, what does this look like for us? How do we participate in a story that, in which Jesus says, don't forget about the more important matters of the faith. Don't forget to be, be seekers of justice. So what does it look like in our world, in our time, in a quasi-post-pandemic, like mid, mid to late post-pandemic type of world? How do, we, how do we deal with this? Well, for one thing, one in six people in North Texas is food insecure. Um, which, which, is, which is to say that they don't know where their next meal is coming from. One in six people in North Texas, where we live right now, they don't know where their next meal is coming from. This is why throughout the pandemic, if you were to go on our website and you were look, look for like giving links, one of the places that we tried to highlight and uh, steer people towards was the North Texas Food Bank. Um, because especially in the midst of the pandemic when uh, kids weren't able to go to school or like w when, when like some kids were, weren't able to go to school and some kids were and there, were, there was a lot of like remote learning, like a lot, of, a lot of kids get their, like a lot of their meals from their schools. And so when, when it became difficult for everybody to be at school, one of the things that happens is more kids become food insecure. So um, one, of the, one of the things that we as a church have tried to do, or try to be cognizant of, is what does it look like for us to partner with organizations that are feeding people, that are, that are addressing the issue of food insecurity, not just in the world, but in our, own, in our zip code. And um, one of the things that we we're hoping to get back to at a certain point is um, we, we want to be... Um, we, we want to go back to uh, providing donations for the Roanoke Food Pantry. That was a thing that uh, towards the beginning of the pandemic, they stopped taking the Roanoke Food Pantry, stopped taking uh, in-person donations. They were only taking financial donations because of fear of like getting like tainted items. Like because if, if you don't know, like, especially early on when we didn't know very much about how the virus is transmitted, one, the Roanoke Food Pantry shut down their donations or their, their food donations because it was like, we don't want somebody to drop off food and it have um, viral particles on it. And so uh, thank, thankfully we've learned you know, more and, and we've gotten to where there, there are safe practices on that. But, um, but one, one of the questions we're gonna hopefully ask in the next few weeks is 
how can we go back to partnering with the Roanoke Food Pantry? At the time, they were asking for tom tomato-based products. Um, we, we don't know what they need now. We don't know if, what they need is everything. We don't know if they're still asking for, for financial stuff. That's, that, that is a question we will, we will start asking very, very soon. We'll, we will be getting in touch with them. Um, also, in North Texas, but also everywhere, unreported domestic violence has been on the rise since the beginning of the pandemic, again, because people are, like kids are going to school less, which is where uh, domestic violence is often reported. And so, um, so unreported domestic violence continues to be on the rise. And uh, we were, for a while, partnering with Denton County Friends of the Family, which is a, um, a domestic violence um, re relief project. And um, we, we, were, we were providing some resources and services to them. And that was something that we also, again, in the midst of the pandemic, had to stop doing. So one of the questions becomes, what do they need from us now? What does it look like for us to um, help out in, in that particular situation? Um, we know that in the last handful of years, incidents of white supremacy motivated violence has been on the rise. And so what does it look like for us to be a church that doesn't look the other way? Um, when lots and lots of white evangelical churches do tend to look the other way and tend to think that's not our problem. It is our problem. Um, and so we, we want to be aware of that. We want to be advocates for our, our neighbors, our friends, our brothers and sisters who are people of color, who are suffering, who are afraid. And uh, we, we never want to be silent when uh, our voices are needed. So we never want to stop listening when people are speaking about these kinds of things. And then um, also one in four adults in the U.S. has some kind of disability. And this is a thing I don't exactly fully know what it looks like for us to be a church that is cognizant and um, attempting to, to be people who are helping um, and, and assisting people who have a disability. But we want to be the kind of church that's aware of it. So um, the, these are new questions. Some of these are new questions. Some of these are old questions that we're just having to re-ask re uh, because the world has changed since the last time we were together. So. Um, we want to be the kind of church that asks questions about what does it look like for us to be people who do justly. Because when we're, when we're reconstructing and deconstructing and when we're trying to figure out what goes back in, if, if we're going to take the scripture seriously at any level, we have to take seriously our call to be people who are seekers of justice. We have to not neglect the more important matters of faith. So, uh, I and, and maybe there's an individual dimension for that for you. Maybe there's an issue. Maybe there's a question. Maybe there's a, a problem that you, when you see it, it makes you angry, it makes you feel something, you, you feel deep in your bones, and maybe it's because you're the one who's supposed to say something or do something about that. So um, may we as individuals, may part of our individual spirituality be to be seekers of justice. May we never forget the plight of the widow and the fatherless and the foreigner and whoever else needs to be seen. So may we be people who are cognizant of this, may we be people who are... Um, Again, who, who never fail to do the more important matters of the faith. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for this invitation to participate in the story that you are telling and that this story is centered in many ways around questions of love and grace and peace and justice. And for those of us who are in the midst of a reconstruction, may we find that justice is a key component in who we are called to be instead of who perhaps we thought we were. Um, may we adopt this as, as something that we take seriously. May we be doers and seekers of justice. May we bring grace and peace to those who need it the most. In the name of Jesus, we pray.